Welcome to the podcast of Sozo Church. For more information about Sozo, please visit sozosmtx.com. Welcome to Repentance Sunday. Well, you know, repentance is a good word, isn't it? We, we don't often think about it being a good word, but it really means to rethink, to adjust and align our thinking with God's. And uh, how many of you know that, that true repentance is trading up? Okay, it's trading what you, you don't know for what he does know, okay? And so this morning, we're gonna uh, adjust our thinking a little bit. We might, uh, it might be Sacred Cow Sunday for some of you. But that's okay. That's okay. That's what growing, it, it, like Joel was talking about his, his weightlifting expertise and all that. You got to break down to build up, don't you? And I think God might break some things down in us so that we can build up in him, right? I mean, Jesus' very first message, he's, he's looking to uh, meet with Peter and his brother Andrew. And he says, he, when he gets with them, he says, look, you're going to have to repent and believe the good news of the kingdom of God. How many of you know the kingdom of God is a different way of thinking? It's a major shift. And how many of you know that the kingdom of God is the central message? I mean, it's the focus. If we can get that right, we can get everything else right. So somebody said, that's all you ever talk about. Well, that's because it's about all there is to talk about is Jesus and the kingdom of God. So I want us to, I want us to look at a statement as we talk, we continue in our talk, but how many of you were here last week when we looked at Jesus's victorious, optimistic eschatology? A handful of you, okay? I wanna start with a statement I made at the beginning of that uh, talk as well. If we could just have that up there. Because I believe, that, I really believe this is true, okay? All right, that's not it. But that's a good one, Okay? <laughs> That's the good one too, but that's not it. Well, let me just say it, okay? What we believe about the future determines how we live in the present and how we prepare for the future. Let me say that one more time because I want you to get it because that's what this whole thing is gonna be built on. What we believe about the future determines how we live right now, today, in the present and how we'll prepare for the future. Okay, now go to that next one. There are two prominent views of end times, okay? And so I wanna talk a little bit about that today and kind of develop that. My, my main goal is when you walk out of this place, you walk out with fearlessness in your body. You won't walk out more fearful than when you walked in. You know, some people, when they talk about end times, you walk out more fearful than you walked in but that you walk out fearless because Jesus has a better way. Jesus is the better way. Now, I want us to look at it. These are the two prominent uh, views of end times. The first one is uh, preterism. So everybody say preterism. It just means past, past. It was the dominant view of the early church. You know why? Because they knew that something happened when Jesus died on the cross. It changed everything. They knew it. So that's what preterism meant. It was the dominant uh, view of end times for at least the first 1,500 years, maybe longer. And I'm gonna need water, so I'm gonna come down here and get it before I get started too, too much. So that's the first one. The second one is futurism. 
That was, that's pretty much the dominant view of Western evangelicals today, okay? So if you grew up in an evangelical church and you've lived in this century and the one before, that's probably what you were exposed to. So what is the difference between these two? Preterism focuses on the finished work of Jesus on the cross, Okay? It focused on the reality that something happened that changed everything on the cross. The second thing that preterism focuses on is the advancing kingdom of God. What was Jesus' dominant message? The kingdom of God. It's in your midst. It's within. It's advancing. It's going forward. And so his prayer was, Father, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Now, the difference between uh, preterism and futurism, futurism is view of, of the cross is the same. Thank you for forgiveness on the cross so that I can go to heaven when I die. Are you with me? That's the message I got when I was growing up. Jesus, thank you for dying for me so that I, when I die, I can go to heaven. Futurism looks at the kingdom of God and says, yes, the kingdom of God is an important major message, but it's for a future time. It's, it's way down yonder. Right now, we're living in the church age, okay? And the church age is really just a kind of a parenthesis because it's really about Israel and we're grateful to be engrafted in. But one day when Jesus comes back, the kingdom age will begin. And so the real focus can't be on the kingdom of God until Jesus comes back and then we'll focus on the kingdom of God. Are you with me? Yep. Some of y'all are not sure if you're with me. You're hearing me, okay? So that's good, that's good. So preterism says we're waiting for the kingdom of God to focus, uh, focus the kingdom focus to begin. And so that, that's the, the primary deal. Can I tell you about the preterist view for a minute? Yes, please. Thank you. I'll, I will, I'll talk with you then, okay? <laughs> See, the, the, the preterist view focuses on the kingdom now. The kingdom of God. Jesus said the kingdom of God, uh, the, the kairos time has happened. The kingdom of God is in your midst. It's drawing near. The king has come. So the view is the kingdom is, is, is now, and it's now a kingdom of focus. Now we're to seek first the kingdom of God, that now we're not waiting for Jesus to become Lord. Yes. Are you with me? Thank you, God. Do, do you believe Jesus is Lord? Yes. Jesus is Lord. Jesus is king. And furthermore, he is king of kings. So where does that put us? That puts us in a position of royalty. He's our king. He's the king of kings. We're royalty. We're his ambassadors. We get to be ambassadors of his ever advancing kingdom. Now that's just pretty main and plain teaching there. So the, the bottom line is the reason why I, I'm gonna teach from this vantage is because I believe it's what the, the Bible teaches. I believe that it's clearly what the early church believed but thirdly, and very importantly for us today in our chaotic world that we live in, it is the most victorious eschatology. It enables us to live fearlessly in the middle of chaos. So let me give you a little perspective because some of you don't, not sure you believe it. Surely 
the world is worse than it's ever been, right? Well, in our lifetime, it could be. But, but let's give a little snapshot. If you imagine that you were born in 1900, okay? I don't think we have anybody in here who was born in 1900. That's about when my grandpa was born. He would be, be pretty old today. If you were born in 1900, when you were 14 years old, World War I would break out. And it wouldn't end until you were 22 years old with the loss of 22 million lives. Shortly after that, the world pandemic, known as the Spanish flu, took place. It begins and it kills about 50 million people. You come out of that alive and you're grateful. Everybody says, I'm grateful to be alive. We're coming out of a pandemic, we're grateful. And you're only 20 years old at this point. At age 29, the global economic crisis known as the Great Depression happens. The whole economy falters, falls, crashes, inflation, unemployment, um, suicides, hunger. You're only 29 years old. You've seen some things. At the age of 33, the Nazis come to power. At age 39, World War II breaks out, your second war in just 39 years of age. And it ends when you're 45, more than 60 million are dead, including 6 million Jews in the Holocaust. At the age of 52, the Korean War breaks out. And by the time you're 64 years old, Vietnam begins and will not end until you're 75. That's just the 75-year life right there. That's a lot. I think perspective's really important, isn't it? The truth is, Jesus said this, in the world, you will have tribulation, but be of good cheer. I've overcome the world. In our, in our world, in our fallen world, there's gonna be stuff that happens, but it's opportunity for us to be salt and light and leaven to a world that needs it. And that's gotta be what our perspective is. So what, what I wanna, I'll give you a quick review of last week since a good chunk of you were not here. Last week we looked at Jesus's longest uh, and uh, his last and longest prophetic message that he gave. And it was on the, the Mount of Olives. It's recorded in Matthew, Mark, Luke. And some people believe that John's revelation is that same Olivet Discourse. And so you find it in every one of those things, and it's really the key to, under, to how we interpret Revelation. Some of you are probably thinking, man, I, we're gonna do Revelation. Can I take, we're not gonna do Revelation in the next you know, 25 minutes. That's not gonna happen. But I wanna say that when you're talking about end times, and you come from a futuristic perspective, Revelation's the book you're gonna go to. So I'm gonna give you some perspective on some things here this morning and uh, give you some opportunity to rethink some things, some opportunity to push back a little bit because here, here's the thing about end times. The end times are in the future, okay? I don't like that language, end times, and, and I could tell you why, but when you're talking about the last things, they're future, right? And you can't be dogmatic on any view because 
the future hadn't happened yet, right? And so um, we'll just file that one. Last week, we looked at Matthew 24, verses 4 through 26. Again, another hinge um, chapter to understanding Revelation. And so Jesus, let, let's just take a look at that. Let's put that slide up. And there are eight signs Jesus, his disciples asked Jesus some questions. Remember, he says, man, the temple's gonna fall down, down, down. And they said, when's this gonna happen? And Jesus says, it's gonna happen in your generation. Within 40 years, it's gonna happen. And then they said, okay, so what will be the, the, the sign uh, of your coming and of the end of the age. You remember that? Just a little review. And Jesus gives them, uh, and I broke it in about eight different signs that he said, this is what's gonna happen before the end of the temple age, before the end of the new covenant, old covenant age, before the, the kingdom of God age begins, before the Jesus is Lord, before the new covenant age begins. He said, these are things that are going to happen. And so he, let's just look at him. First thing he said, there's gonna be false messiahs and false prophets. And you can jot those verses down if you didn't get them last week. Were there false messiahs and false prophets that we know of between AD 30 and AD 70? Yes. Absolutely. There was 12 to 15 people who were going around saying, I'm the messiah, I'm the one. Josephus, the great Jewish historian, talks all about it. In his, uh, in his books and volumes he's read, I, I, I was doing a deal with the, our students at SSI and I brought in a book. I was talking about Josephus and, and one of the students said, I would like to buy that book. I said, great. And so I pulled it out and it's about that thick because it has all of his works in it. And I said, well, it's, I could direct you to something a little smaller than that. There's tons written about what I'm talking about. There were wars, I mean, there were false messiahs, false, false prophets. The book of 2 Peter and Jude written to address those things. Many of Paul's writings about those very things taking place between AD 30 and AD 70, a generation. Number two, wars, rumors of wars. We talked a little bit about how that the Pax Romana, the, the peace of Rome was crumbling and there was all kinds of rebellions, wars breaking out. Just the Jews alone had three major wars with Rome from 66 to 70, major, about three and a half years of major war going on as Rome was beginning to lose its authority and power. Um, Number three, natural disasters, famine, earthquakes, all throughout Scripture. Everywhere Paul went, he's collecting a famine relief for, for Jerusalem. Earthquakes, remember Paul and Silas in the jail? Earthquake, earthquakes that wiped out entire uh, cities and areas all during that time. Cold love, falling away from faith. The whole book of Hebrews is saying, hey, listen, I know that it looks like the temple's still up, it's still going up, but there's a new way in Jesus. Don't go backwards. Yeah. Hello? That's what Joel was telling us today. We're different people. We're new creations in Christ. Don't go backwards. Don't be enticed by the idolatry of the world that doesn't satisfy. Your appetite's too weak if it's, if it's not satisfied by Jesus. Get a stronger appetite. 
Get a greater hunger for Jesus. That's what, what he's saying there. And then we said, number six, the one that most people kind of go, oh, this, I got you now. This surely didn't happen in that time. The gospel will be preached to the whole world. What do you think about that one? Well, we looked at that last week. We said that word world is orkomene, and it, and it means the civilized world of the day, a region. It's the Roman Empire. And we looked at all kinds of passages in Colossians 1.23. It says this, this is the gospel that has been proclaimed to every creature under heaven. That was the view. I mean, they were going all over the then known world, sharing the gospel. It was so alive within all of the apostles and the new believers that had come out of uh, the Pentecost and the whole dispersion that went forward. What about number seven, the abomination that causes desolation? Well, surely that ain't happened. Okay. Well, if you just read Luke's version, Luke, Luke 21, he says that the abomination that causes desolation that we read about in Daniel is when the Roman armies surround Jerusalem. Go, go back and take a look at it. It's around uh, Luke 21, uh, around 20 or 21, somewhere in there. And then finally, the great tribulation. Well, there's gonna have to be a great tribulation. In the world, you'll always have tribulation. And we looked at that word, tribulation, uh, telipsis. And, and it means persecution. It means suffering. It means trials, tribulation. It means all of those things. But great distress, your version might say great tribulation or whatever takes place. And like I said, because there was war all around the temple in Jerusalem for over three and a half years in great groaning of tribulation during that time. 1.1 million people were killed on, eight, in the, on that day in AD 70, whenever the temple was absolutely destroyed. Most of them Jews. Over 97,000 Jews were taken captive in slavery during that time. Just absolutely destroyed the entire temple system, the whole priesthood system. It literally changed uh, the Jewish way of worship. No longer did they have a temple. No longer did they have a way of sacrifice. They became a people of the Torah. They became people of, of rabbinical leaders and synagogues. And everything, everything shifted on that day. So we looked at that. So the question that I want to raise today, I'm going to call this message. So what are we waiting for if, if, if we don't have a tribulation coming and there ain't no desolate, uh, an abomination that causes desolation and false messiahs and all. If all that, what, what, are, we, what are we waiting for? Well, I'm, I'm glad you asked. <laughs> you know, what, I think before I get to what are we waiting for, I'm gonna say it this way. Some, some of you here have, before I can get what we're waiting for, you have some, but what about questions? You know what I mean? Tell me if, if any of these are your questions. But, but what about the rapture? Is anybody's question here? All right, we'll go on then if, if that's not a question. You wanna hear about the rapture? All right, we'll get there. What about the Antichrist? Okay, how many of you grew up being learning all about a one world, world ruler who was gonna bring this whole thing together? hell in a handbasket and going to be set up in the temple and, and the whole sacrificial, you know, seven years and the whole, whole okay. We'll, we'll talk about that if you want to. How about the beast? What about the beast? Anybody want to know about the beast? 
All right, we're getting, getting a little... Y'all are crafting my message, by the way. If you don't, if you don't want to talk about it, I, I, we've got, we can move forward. What about the mark of the beast? Oh, we got one now. Woo! I do not want to take that computer chip or that whatever, and you know, I, I'm worried about that. Okay, we'll get to that. How about, how about Israel? Oh, we don't have enough time to talk about Israel, but, but we'll, we'll maybe one day. Okay. So let, let's start with the Antichrist, okay? The Antichrist, you know, uh, I grew up hearing about the one world ru ruler known as the Antichrist. So what does the Bible say about it? You might be a little surprised that the term Antichrist does not even appear in the book of Revelation. Do you know that? Not in there. You might be a little surprised that the word antichrist is only used four times in the entire Bible, okay? You might be a little surprised that three of those times are in 1 John and one of those times is in 2 John, okay? Um, context for John's writings about the Antichrist. In the first century church, there was a belief system called Gnosticism. Anybody ever heard of Gnosticism? Okay. So Gnosticism basically uh, believed that the spirit is good, but that the physical and emotional realm is evil. Gnosticism basically was birthed out of uh, Greek Platonic philosophy, okay? It's dualism, okay? Separate, let's separate the spirit and the body. We have a lot of that today. Man, my stinking body and emotions and all that's terrible. My spirit's great. If I could just be a spirit. So what they believed is that Jesus did not come in physical being but that he was a spirit being. That was what was being taught. And about a third of the church was beginning to buy into this. I mean, there would be by the fourth century. That's why all the councils would take place to, to determine who Jesus really was. And they came up with, thank you, Jesus. Thank you, God. Thank you, Holy Spirit. That they were three in one, Father, Son, God, man, Jesus is the God, man, the hypostatic union. Y'all don't care anything about that. But that's where all that stuff came from. And so John is with that background says this. Let's, let's take a look at a couple verses here. In 1 John 4, verses one through three, he says, dear friends, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they're from God because many false prophets have gone into the world. This is a time where there are lots of false prophets, false messiahs, wrong teaching. There's probably more heretical teaching in the early church time than any time in the history of the church. Why? They were sorting it out. They were trying to figure it out. And there were a bunch of knuckleheads that were coming in with this antichrist spirit. Look what he says. He says, every spirit that acknowledges that Jesus has come in the flesh is from God. But every spirit that does not acknowledge Jesus is, is not from God. This is the spirit of antichrist. 
which you have heard is coming and even now is already in the world. Who's he talking to? He's talking real people at a real time in the 60s AD, just before 70 AD would occur. He said, there's antichrist spirits. Some of you don't believe me. Let's look at one more here. In uh, 2 John 1, 7, 2 John 1, 7, he, said, he says, this is John writing, he says, I say this because many deceivers who do not acknowledge Jesus Christ as coming in the flesh have gone into the world. Any such person is the deceiver and the antichrist, okay? He's not talking about a one world ruler, is he? He's, he's talking about somebody that, that, that has this Gnostic view and, and is pressing something that is not the truth about who Jesus is. The 100% God, 100% man. Why is that important? Because the new covenant is made between God and the God-man, Jesus. And because Jesus is God and man, we get to enter into that covenant. Are you with me? We don't do too good. Every covenant you look at scripture between God and a man or a people doesn't do too well, right? Why? Because we're not God and we can't hold it up. But the God-man, Jesus can. And that's why this is important. Uh, one more verse, I, I don't think it's up there, I'll just say it. Dear children, this is the last hour, just right before AD 70, the end of the old covenant system. And as you have heard, the Antichrist is coming. Even now, many Antichrists have come. This is how we know it's the last hour. Can I say this? The Antichrist isn't a person, it's a belief system. It's specifically Gnosticism. I wish I had time to talk about some other passages in, in uh, 2 Thessalonians that talks about the man of lawlessness. You, you know what I'm talking about? The, the man of sin. And who in the world is that? Maybe that, that must be the Antichrist. Maybe they just call him something different. We'll save that because I, I, I'd love to talk that, but we'll run out of time here. How about the beast? Can we talk about beast a little bit? So what is that all about? In, Roman, in Revelation 13 and 17, it speaks about the beast, okay? And, uh, you know, if you have come from a dispensational, futuristic uh, vantage, you've heard all kinds of things about who the beast is and probably a lot of predictions about who the beast is or was or whatever. But the majority of church history, as the slide says, is taught that the beast represents the Roman Empire. In real time, Rome was brutal. They were savage to everyone that they oppressed, particularly during the time from AD 54 to AD 68, there was one particularly maniacal Emperor, Caesar. Does anybody have an idea who that was? Nero. See, even the, even the world, if somebody says that guy is like Nero, man, most people have no clue who Nero was, but Nero was a bad-to-the-bone dude. I mean, he was wickedness personified. Um, he was brutally murdered, many of his family members. He, he, he murdered one of, his, one of his pregnant wives, kicked her to death. Very perverted 
in his sexuality. Just, uh, I don't want to even talk about that stuff that he did. Remember, remember hearing about, or has, have you ever heard the phrase, um, uh, Nero fiddled while Rome, burn, uh, Rome burned? In 64 AD, he burned about a third of Rome down, blamed it on Christians. I mean, this, this is the guy who, you know, Christians being thrown into the uh, lines and, and, and all of the, um, what, what's the, anyway, you, you, you get it, gladiator world, you know. And so uh, that's the beast. The beast, as you read it interchangeably, it's talking about Nero personally, but it's talking about Rome in general. Go back and look at those passages. From, as, as you, the good thing about a passage like this, you guys can Google any of this stuff and see what you think, because it, it'll be in there. What about the mark of the beast? We've already said the beast is Rome, the beast is Nero, but maybe you didn't know that uh, in ancient Rome, in the public market, Main, main source of trade, everybody would go in there and they would trade. But in order to trade, you, you, you'd have to pass through a main gate and all who entered that were required to pay homage to the emperor, whoever the emperor was at that time. In this case, it would have been Nero most of the time. There, there were, by the way, in AD 69, after Nero committed suicide, there, there were three uh, emperors in one year in Rome. Nero tagged into that. You got four and 18 months. Crazy. And so what you had to do is, once you paid homage, they had ashes. They placed them either on your hand or on your forehead, and you were allowed to pass through the gate and buy and sell. This was called taking the mark of the beast. Okay? Now, I'm not saying that we don't, there, there, there's no such thing as a mark, but why don't we focus on the mark of Jesus? Have you taken the mark of Jesus? See, that's the real question. Because if you hadn't taken the mark of Jesus, then you've taken the mark of the beast. You know what I mean? You've said, I'm gonna live for me, which can be a pretty beastly thing, huh? Some of you are going, he called me a beast. Not on the Nero part, but you're a beast. Because we can't live as we were created to live unless we take the mark of Jesus, right? And we, we get our focus on the wrong thing and fear. We live in such fear instead of saying, you know what, this, is a, this has happened. I don't really need to fear about that. All right, let's keep going. You need to listen more, more quickly. How about, how about Israel? I'm gonna do one on Israel, okay? I'll, I'll, take, I'll take one little poke at Israel and then we'll move on. You know, again, we don't have the time, but a lot of times people will say, okay, so if Israel is the key to the futurist theology and eschatology and all that, uh, it's because that there are promises that were made in the Old Covenant, in the Old Testament, that were not fulfilled yet. That's always the argument, Right? And so, therefore, the temple is going to have to be rebuilt. A third temple, the sacrificial system would have to come back. And, and I, I just can't, I can't let that go without commenting on that. Can I say it again? Jesus is the once for all sacrifice to end all sacrifices. 
There's none like Jesus. Why in the world would we go backwards? We're living in a new and better covenant. Can I get an amen? amen. All right. Now, listen to this. In Joshua 21, 43 through 45, it says, so the Lord gave Israel all the land he had sworn to give their ancestors and they took possession of it and settled it. The Lord gave them, the re gave them rest on every side just as he had sworn to their ancestors. Not one of their enemies uh, withstood them. The Lord gave all their enemies into their hands. Look at verse 45. Not one of all the Lord's good promises to Israel failed. Every one of them was fulfilled. That'll make you think, won't it? Well, God, you're taking all, away, all of my favorite things away. Okay, well, let's, let's go to the one that y'all really wanna talk about anyway. What about the rapture? I left that because that might need a little bit more time than, than the others, okay? Let me just first say that the whole idea of rapture, and I grew up all about the rapture. I mean, the best books are the left behind and the you might be getting left behind or whatever books and series and all of that. Where did that come from? How long has that been the idea? Has the, has the church always believed that? No. You know, there was a, a uh, oh, I think he was a, a Franciscan he was a, I know, he's a Jesuit priest named Francisco um, Ribera in 1585. That's going back a little bit. In 1585, he was the first one to write about a futuristic kingdom, okay? It wasn't until, and it didn't catch on. It wasn't until way in the 1830s, and you're thinking, 1830s, that seems like a lot. Can I tell you what, in the economy of God's kingdom and all that's unfolded since Christ, 1830s is young, young, young. And so in 1830s, I try to do this quickly, but you need a little bit of background. In 1830s, a guy by the name of uh, John Darby, John Nelson Darby and his buddy, um, I think his name was Edward Irving. They began to teach this doctrine of a secret catching away. Let me tell you about the rapture. If you don't know what the rapture is or unfamiliar with it, here's the idea. It's the concept that any day in the future, Jesus will, will, will secretly snatch away all of his followers to heaven. Now this will be followed by an antichrist Rising, seizing rule over the earth. He's going to be in a, 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 a throne in a rebuilt temple in Jerusalem. Some say it's going to be, the rapture will happen halfway through. Some of them say it's going to happen at, at the very beginning. And God's then going to pour out his wrath on all the wicked in the earth. And it's going to culminate in a battle called the Battle of Armageddon. Any of y'all heard, heard that? Okay. I, that's all I ever heard. And so essentially none of these teachings were taught before 1830s. And so Darby kind of spreads that out, but it really doesn't take root until the 1900s, early 1900s. How many of you know the early 1900s is only 100 years ago? 
And there's a guy by the name of C.I. Schofield. How many of you got a C.I. Schofield study Bible? Reference Bible. Don't, don't get shy on me. I've got one too, okay? And so C.I., huh? Dustin's got one. He's, he's carried it with him today. Um, C.I. Schofield was a theologian who, who really liked what um, Darby and Irving were teaching. And so he, put, he got their notes and he put them in his Bible. Now, why is that important? Because there had never been a Bible like that before. We all, many of us have study Bibles and stuff, but there'd never been one like that before. And so people began to buy it like crazy and they began to read it and they began to, that became something that they, it became a part of their life. Now, the interesting thing, I think it was written around um, 1909 and uh, around that time, a little before that, the Azusa Street Revival took place. Holy Spirit took place. Pentecostalism began to explode. One of the things C.I. Schofield did in his Bible is he put in this teaching about the rapture and about dispensational futurism, future kingdom and all that, but he also included notes that were anti-supernatural. He, he, he didn't believe that the gifts were today. He put all kinds of things in there saying he was a cessationist. And so he put all that in there well, guess who he alienated? All the Holy Ghost people, all the Pentecostal people who liked, liked the notes on the end times, but they didn't like the stuff about anti-supernatural deal. Schofield was a smart man. By 1922, he did a revision. Guess what he did? Took out all the anti-supernatural stuff and left in all of the dispensational futurism stuff. What happened was there were seminaries that began to take it up. Dallas Theological Seminary, uh, D.L. Moody's Bible Institute. They, they, they took it, they began to teach it, and guess what? Preacher boys from all over the world began to get indoctrinated with Darbyism. That's what it, most people call it, Darbyism, okay? And so most or many of us here, we received that message because it was passed on down to somebody who's somebody who got it to us, because that's just the way it was. And then, you know, you kind of combine that with uh, Dake's annotated uh, reference Bible is promotes Darbyism, the Ryrie Study Bible. Um, oh, what's, what's the other one? Oh, John MacArthur Study Bible. Oh, every one of those took those deals. And so we began to get that. And then obviously all of the books came out. Hal Lindsey, Late Great Planet Earth, Tim LaHaye. That, I give you all of that. You say, why in the world do you share all that? Because I want you to understand how good news can travel pretty fast. Bad news travels even faster. But we've got the best news. And what, what I want to say is, if, if, if the true kingdom of God message sticks in your heart, it can revolutionize our entire planet, I believe, in one generation. I, be I believe that. In one generation, sold out people that fully say, you know what, I believe the kingdom of God is expanding and advancing and Jesus is Lord and he's on his throne and the world doesn't have to get darker and darker and go to hell in a handbasket for him to come back and rescue us out of this muck and mire. He already went to the cross for us. He's already Lord. He's already King of Kings. We're the one who need to realize that we're the kings on the other end of that. 
that we're his royal priesthood. We're a holy nation. We're a people who belongs to God that we might declare the praises of him who called us out of darkness to his marvelous light. Once we're not a people, but now we're the people of God. Folks, that's good news that will change the world. It'll change the world. But like, like Joel was saying this morning, we've got to change the way we think. We've got to get a new lens. We've got to understand some things about our inheritance, our birthright, who we are, so that we can move forward and carry a victorious message to our world. People are tired of hearing how bad things are and hopeless they are in the church just say, yep, it sure is. But Jesus is coming back. Can I tell you, he's already come and he is coming back, but he's coming back for a beautiful bride without wrinkle, without spot, a bride that is equally yoked to him who can partner with him and live out this kingdom message, right? It's good, good news. It's good news. But sometimes we have to deconstruct in order to reconstruct in order to be constructive, right? So let's talk about the rapture. I'm going to say this. I, I'm talking to my friend Grace after last Sunday. And she says, so Pastor Steve, and I know when she says that, it's not like deeply respectful. It's like, so Mr. Know-it-all, <laughs> what about the rapture? What if there is a rapture? You know, because I hadn't said anything about the rapture. Hold that thought. I'm going to talk to you about the rapture. We'll come back to Grace in just a bit here. I'm going to answer you today, Grace. Look at this. The, there, there are four primary verses. You can jot them down about the rapture. One is 1 Thessalonians 4, 13 through 18. That's the biggie. The other one is Matthew 24, 40 through 41. You remember we went through that? Two men, two men in, a, uh, in a field. One will be taken and the other will be left. Hello? He was left behind. Can I, can I just remind you what that's, what's really going on there? And it says two women grinding at the mill, same deal, one's left. Do anybody remember what I said on that? I said it last week. Okay, I remember it. I mean, but I mean, if y'all don't remember it, that's good. Here's the deal. Everybody would have known what, what was Jesus was saying because it was happening. The Roman army would come up on a couple people and they would take one and, and they'd either kill them or they would enslave them in, in the, in, for Rome. And so everybody reading that goes, oh, gee whiz, that, that's true, that happens. He's saying that's what it's gonna be like in this great tribulation, in this, this uh, desolation of Rome, okay? This abomination that causes devil, just like, all right, so that's one. The other one is um, Revelation 4, 1. You remember that where John is in heaven and then there's some that say, well, that's about the rapture because he doesn't mention the church in heaven. You've heard that one, okay? John's just telling his story about his revelation from Jesus in heaven, okay? That's what that one's about. And then another one is Revelation 12. I think it's 12.5. And uh, I'm trying to remember what that one's about. Oh, that's about the ascension of Christ. That's what that's about. So what is 1 Thessalonians about? Do we have time? Sure. All right, we'll make some time. Take a look at this. 1 Thessalonians 4, 
13 through 18. Let's put it up on the screen if we've got it. Do we have it over there? In the back. Is it up there? Okay, let's read it together here. Brothers and sisters, who's he talking to? Christians, right? Do we do not want you to be uninformed about those who sleep in death so that you do not grieve like the rest of mankind? Can I tell you what? We don't need to grieve like the rest of mankind. That's a better word right there. He says, because the rest of the world, the rest of mankind has no hope, but we have hope. He says, for we believe... I mean, this is just like a great confession, a, a creed. Paul just says, we believe Jesus died and rose again. Say amen. He says, we believe that God will bring uh, with Jesus those who have fallen asleep in him according to the Lord's word. We tell you that we who are still alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord will certainly not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will come down from heaven with a loud command in the voice of the archangel and with the trumpet call of God and the dead in Christ will rise. And after that, we who are still alive will be caught up together with them in the clouds, in the air to meet the Lord in the air. Well, surely that's about the rapture. Well, let me say this, because I don't want to get completely stoned here. This is everything else we've talked about. What are we waiting for? It already's happened. This is future talk. Jesus talking is talking future. Something's going to happen here. But what's the context that he's talking to him about? It's interesting. I, I read some commentaries on this because I'm thinking, well, I'm not sure what that's all about. I probably ought to sound smart. And so I read Matthew Henry. Any of y'all read Matthew Henry? I read uh, Adam Clark. Have you ever read him? Probably nobody knows who that is. Um, these guys wrote, um, Matthew Henry would have written in like 1721 or something like that. That's a long time ago. By the way, 1721 is before 1830. Okay, that's our frame of reference. He wrote before any teaching had seeped in as it has deeply into our, Adam Clark the same. And, and everyone that I read before that, you know what they said this is about? It's about the resurrection of the dead. It's about the second coming of Jesus. It's about, where the, I like that word, to meet him in the air. You know what that word is? That word is in the Greek is uh, ap. Apenthesis, apenthesis. I don't know if that's how you say it. Something like that. It's a special word that means to go out to welcome an incoming dignitary. He's saying that all the Christians living and dead on the day of the Lord, they're gonna go out and they're gonna welcome Jesus into the, the king has come back home and saying, Come on, come back, Jesus. We welcome you. That means to go out to and to welcome in. That's very different than a secret two-step, come by up, let him go. Do you understand what I'm saying? Now, here's what I told Grace. She said, what about, what about this rapture, Pastor Steve? And I said, you know what, Grace, here's the deal. The future is the future, and it has not yet happened. 
So for me to be dogmatic with you about that, I got to be pretty dogmatic about everything else we talked about, is hard. I said, if there is a rapture and we're all going up in the air, I'm going to look for you and I'm going to say, hey, Grace, I repent, I was wrong. You hear me? But I said, you know what? Here's the deal. I'm going to live every day of my life for the King of Kings and Lord of Lords, make my life count, advance the kingdom of God. And as I'm going up, I'm going to go, but I lived a great life for the King. Instead of, "Ah, we're just going to have to wait for Jesus to come back. Or we we get zapped out of here in in the rapture, taken up in the clouds. I had people tell me, you know what the blessed, the blessed hope is that we get raptured. Can I tell you, that's not the blessed hope. If your hope is in a defeated life where you just get zapped out of a bad world, I don't know, I don't think I wanna live that way. But if your hope is like in a king of kings and a lord of lords who rules and reigns over all, we partner with him to put all of his enemies under his feet, then that's the Lord we're serving. And so I'll take the risk and I'll say, I'm not living for a rapture. I'm living for a return of Jesus. All right, we're gonna wrap this thing up because y'all look tired and and your kids are definitely tired over at at Children's Church. At least Lynette is. So I entitled this message, What Are We Waiting For? And we're just now getting to what are we waiting for? So I'm gonna give you three things that we're waiting for. You go, man, you took away my tribulation, my antichrist, my beast, my right. What do we got left? I'm glad you asked. Number one is the return of Jesus. Physical, bodily form to planet earth. Number two is the resurrection of the dead. Did you notice both of those are in what we just read? Go back and make yourself a note. Go back and read 1 Corinthians chapter 15, about 50 through 56. It uses all the same language about about the trumpet blast, all the things, the welcoming in, heralding in the king to come in. Jesus will come back. The resurrection of the dead and final judgment. Now some of you are going, oh man, I knew you were going to talk about judgment. Aren't you glad time is out? Can I tell you what? Some people go to court and they come out with a great reward. We as the children of God who are marked in Jesus, we've taken the mark of Jesus. Scripture says repeatedly, we will receive the praise of God. We'll receive the reward of God. After all the stuff's burned away, whatever is pure gold and silver and all of that, It's a reward for who we really are in Christ as his sons and daughters. Guys, I I won't tell you, we can walk out of this place living fearlessly. We really can. And I just wanna encourage you, I wanna challenge you to, to trust God in his goodness. He is good no matter what the world might look like. You know why he's good? Because we're his kids. He loves us that much. And we get to represent him wherever we go. Let's stand together and we'll pray.
Well, Father, we thank you that our blessed hope is in Jesus. We thank you, Father, for the cross. And we're so grateful, Lord, for Jesus. We're so grateful for what he did for us, God, that we, he bought us at a price, God. Therefore, we can give glory in our bodies. Lord, I thank you that, that Jesus became a man. He endured everything we, we know and have ever gone through. But I thank you that he's fully God. He fully reveals who you are to us gives us the strength to walk through it. Father, I thank you for the cross. I thank you for our forgiveness. I thank you, Father, for the resurrection. That we are a new creation in Jesus because of the resurrection. That we have resurrection life. Father, I pray if there's anybody here today who's not bowed their knee and said, Jesus, I make you my Lord, that today would be their day. To just say, I want to take the mark of Jesus. God, we set our eyes on you because you're that good. We thank you for the ascension, God, that has given us kingdom authority. Lord, that we can walk in power and authority. And Lord, we can do it together as a family on mission, God. Because of Pentecostal power, the pouring out of your Holy Spirit. Lord, we don't have to fear anything. We can walk in authority together for your purposes. So Father, this morning, we just say yes to you again. We did, we did it in communion, but we do it again. We say, Lord, whatever you've spoken to us about today that we need to unclutch, we need to release to you, we do it, God. I wanna ask our prayer folks to just come forward. And any, anything the Lord wants you to let go of, just come and release it. Maybe you need to say yes to Jesus. Maybe you have a physical need. Maybe there's a burden on your heart. Just come and release it. Be unburdened so that we can walk fully in all that is ours. Lord, we just say we love you. We thank you. Have your way in our midst today, Holy Spirit. Bring wholeness, bring healing. Release all that you want to supernaturally, above the natural in and through us, in Jesus' name, amen.